2: welcome back to the barbell medicine podcast i'm dr jordan feigenbaum this is episode 258 this is our research review for december 2023 And on this podcast we're reviewing two new interesting papers one showing that doing a literal ton of crunches during a workout causes more fat loss in the abdomen than just running and another suggesting that drinking artificially sweetened beverages produces more weight loss than water alone so grab your beverage of choice and strap in we're about to get real nerdy here on the barbell medicine podcast on the other end of the line is the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude?
1: Hey, uh, quite busy at the moment, but things are going okay. What, is, what what would be your beverage of choice that you alluded to there? I know you guys can't see this at home. Diet root beer.
2: I mean, it's diet root beer. Now, to be fair, I have done the scientific tests on diet root beer. Okay, we've compared Barks, diet Barks, to diet A&W. I don't know what A&W stands for, by the way. I assume it's names, but I don't know. So barks versus AW versus zivia which is interestingly clear perhaps this is foreshadowing like the rankings uh <laughs> to Virgil's whatever which is like that fair trade single origin diet root beer and we i put them all in little beakers i labeled them so they were randomized outside of the zivia because again it's clear so you kind of knew what you were drinking yeah unblinded. and yeah hard to hard to hard to blind the uh the, the testers but yeah we had a uh, half dozen testers and they ranked them all and uh can you guess what was the number one non-nutritive sweetened diet root beer i seem to recall that it was barks it's barks yeah and 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 it's just that corroborates my experience barks is a clearly superior diet root beer it's it's the best now what i don't know is this the case of like the pepsi versus coke test right where in general pepsi outperformed coke for a one sip test because it was a little sweeter for Mm, example i see yeah but if people were forced to drink a whole beverage, they preferred Coke. Interesting. I didn't know that. We need a follow-up study. So listen, if you're <laughs> out there, big beverage. <laughs> More, hit research, me up. Needed, as it More research is needed. More research is Yeah, I'm waiting for this. All right. So we're going to start with this uh, spot reduction paper. Austin, what have you heard about spot reduction?
1: Very little besides what shows up in like clearly untargeted advertisements. <laughs> Like the cosmetic side of things is not really my uh, my niche, I would say.
2: Yeah, so I don't know what your search history is where you're getting these targeted ads, but let's just leave <laughs> I that to another. Said untargeted. for, <laughs> sure. that, for that Yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Likely story. But what do you? What's the sort of general thought amongst these? We'll call undifferentiated advertisements and that sort of field. Just people talking about spot
1: reduction in the general public in the lay media as a way? Yeah, I mean the perception in the public seems to be that it is a it is a possible slash desirable, and that there are ways to effectively do it. And then the re- common refrain that I've heard from you know more folks in the kind of fitness community, particularly those who. Uh, purport to be more evidence-based is that it's not it's it's, it's, that it's essentially not possible um, to target this sort of effect in any meaningful way so i think those are probably the main sides of this discussion that i've uh, encountered
2: yeah on the flip side from a medical standpoint there are uh, known genetic, uh, and congenital sort of, uh, conditions that can cause lipodystrophy, for example, where people have their fat stores deposited in either irregular spots. So like ectopic fat, for example, or regionally in far like disproportionate ways, but a lot of the lower body, some people, a lot in the abdomen. Um, and we're not just talking about like the typical Android body fat distribution versus gynoid, you know, men, man versus, versus woman type thing, but, uh, there, there's congenital and, and genetic sort of con- contributors to that there's also like different medications that people can take that will cause like localized lipodystrophy. Are you familiar with any of that
0: stuff?
1: Not immediately off the top of my head. I know that some of those, some of those things exist. Those are going to be less often seen in like a hospitalized type setting, but in general, lipodystrophies is a really broad umbrella category of just abnormal fat distribution. And, and, you know, a common way to think about it is that the normal way that we, preferentially distribute body fat is going to be into the subcutaneous like depot is what you have with the the term that you would use because that's the area where it would it tends to have the least harmful kind of metabolic consequences and effects compared with when we talk about visceral fat deposition and the abdomen around in and around the organs and things like that but in people who for whatever reason genetically medically or due to some sort of chronic medical condition are unable to store sufficient body fat in the subcutaneous uh, tissues it tends to kind of overflow into areas where it is not supposed to be. And that can lead to, for example, people who have relatively lean extremities, relatively lean arms and legs with lipodystrophy. Um, And, but despite looking relatively lean, like even striated or something like that have like severe diabetes and metabolic dysfunction because the body fat um, and the uh, metabolic dysfunction associated with it is all going on like in the abdomen, viscera and the liver and things like that. So there's a ton of things that regulate where body fat is distributed, how it's distributed, and our level of control over that seems to be uh, pretty complicated.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a great segue. And just to kind of summarize to the listenership, effectively, there are two places, two depots, as Austin referred to it as for places you can store uh, body fat one is subcutaneous so subcutaneous fat again that's under the skin it's on your appendages so your arms your legs things of that nature uh, and then there's visceral adipose tissue that's stored in or around the actual abdominal organs and we think that that belly fat that visceral fat visceral adipose tissue is more harmful uh, more nefarious uh, when it's present in a high high levels than fat just under the regular old fat under the skin so this paper called Abdominal Aerobic Endurance Exercise Reveals Spot Reduction Exists, a Randomized Controlled Trial, this is by Brobakken et al, published November of 2023, so last month in the Journal of Physiology Reports. So just for some background, uh, the definition of spot reduction is localized body fat reduction induced by exercise. The idea would be, in, in this case, you would do crunches, for example, and you would reduce your abdominal fat more than if you didn't do crunches. I suppose you could carry this over to like arms. You know, for example, like, oh, I got some body fat in my triceps area. And so you just do a bunch of triceps work and you could lose fat there. Really, any part of the body, I suppose you could uh, try to make an argument that spot reduction, you know, could happen there. But this paper is one of a few that has actually assessed it. So we know that fat loss via exercise is thought to be systemic. And that's kind of what Austin was alluding to with the evidence-based crowd. The current thinking is that fat loss occurs body-wide rather than any specific area that's just being exercised. So you can do exercise. You could do squats, for example. You could do triceps extensions, for example. You could do crunches, for example. And the net fat loss is going to be distributed amongst the entire body and not just a particular area. Now, in contrast, there's a little caveat there because we know that exercise tends to reduce visceral adipose tissue preferentially compared to the same amount of energy use in a form of a calorie reduction so effectively if you burned 500 calories from exercise versus had a calorie deficit of 500 calories we suspect that that person would lose more visceral adipose tissue more body fat um, in the abdominal area due to exercise. And the mechanism there is pretty interesting. It's attributed to this increased sensitivity of visceral adipose tissue. Again, that's body fat around the organs in your abdomen. Um, The increased sensitivity of that specific fat tissue to fat loss signals from the adrenal system. So those are two little organs that sit on top of your kidneys. They're called adrenal glands, and they produce things like cortisol, release cortisol into the system, also release things like uh, the, the catecholamines so noradrenaline adrenaline norepinephrine epinephrine um and similar and so the thought is that because exercise increases the release of cortisol increases the release of those sympathetic nervous system modulators that because the visceral adipose tissue is more sensitive to those things you see more loss of the body fat there because they're effectively uh, uh, broken down for energy use Um, there's another mechanism that potentially is involved because exercise is thought to increase insulin sensitivity, which may be mediated by a slightly different mechanism than calorie restriction. Um, And so we know that people with increased insulin resistance, so less insulin sensitivity tend to have higher levels of visceral adipose tissue, as far as whether or not that mechanism is contributory or the main one, um, as far as why exercise reduces sort of visceral adipose tissue more preferentially than uh, just calorie restriction alone. We're not sure, but It could be one or both or, you know, uh, some other mechanisms that remain to be uh, undiscovered at this point. It should also be noted, though, that exercise increases or uh, produces the same amount of subcutaneous fat loss. So it's not like you're just shifting where the fat's coming from. You get the same amount of fat loss that's from underneath the skin, subcutaneous fat, but just more uh, visceral adipose tissue loss about two times as much visceral adipose tissue loss based on recent meta-analysis. Uh, so for example, a study that compared one year of calorie restriction only versus exercise only in individuals who, with overweight showed that although both groups lost the same amount of weight, the reductions in visceral adipose tissue and intramuscular adipose tissue were nearly double that of the calorie restriction group in the group who exercised. Another recent meta-analysis showed a dose-dependent relationship with exercise volume and visceral adipose tissue reduction, whereas the effect of calorie restriction itself was not dose-dependent. So, all that means is that, yes, both calorie restriction and exercise can cause a reduction in visceral adipose tissue reduction, but it does seem to be this uh, additional benefit, again, through different mechanisms – where there's a dose dependent relationship between how much exercise somebody's doing and how much visceral adipose tissue reduction there actually is. Um, So already right off the bat, I'm starting to think like, okay, if this group did more exercise than the other group, then I'm like, oh, well, maybe there's a reason why there's some regional differences in body fat loss. So just kind of keep that in the back of your head as we talk about this. Now, Austin, just briefly, uh, what do you know about adrenal disease and like body fat distribution because there's an uh, there's obviously a number of different adrenal diseases
1: but in general does that sort of you know get your spidey sense tingling (laughs) uh there's probably one thing that it makes me think of because the adrenals there's uh, maybe, you know, there's a handful of hormones that the, that the adrenals secrete, but the main one that I think of in terms of having direct impacts on body fat distribution tends to be cortisol. And in particular, when cortisol is secreted in excess for whatever reason, so that's known as Cushing syndrome. And that's a situation where, um, body fat is distributed in a very particular way. You know, people, there, there can be changes seen in the face, on the back of the neck and the abdomen, there can be thinning of the skin, thinning of the extremities, things like that. There's not really a characteristic, you know, uh, uh, manifestation in terms of fat distribution when people have too little uh, cortisol production when their adrenals aren't working that well and then most of the other hormones in the adrenal glands whether sexual re- sex hormone uh, related things or other things that regulate blood pressure don't really tend to have as much of an effect on uh, on body fat distribution so i think cortisol particularly in excess is the main thing that comes to mind when you when you uh, prompt me on the fly like this <laughs> yeah yeah there you go
2: so okay before we dive into the study just a recap uh, because again, we know that visceral adipose tissue by definition is lo- localized to the abdomen. One could argue that spot reduction has been known to occur secondary to exercise on some level for a pretty long time, but it's unknown that if target, that targeted exercise itself produces greater fat loss of any sort in the area that's been exercised. Previous studies have pretty much been relegated to only type like strength training, and then they use calipers to basically uh, assess fat which has poor agreement with more accurate and precise measurements like mri ct scan or dexa scan for example and so this new study effectively set out to uh, flip the script and address all these issues so what did they do the these uh, researchers took 16 dudes average age was 43 average height was 5 foot 11 they all had a bmi greater than 25 and they were currently not ec- exercising regularly this study was also done in norway they did a DEXA scan, which uses x-ray technology uh, to assess body composition. And this is based on the principle that x-ray beams will travel through different tissues, like muscle and fat mass, at different intensities. And so you can determine, you know, hey, this person's got this much fat mass and this much non-fat mass, which is also called lean mass or fat-free mass. They also tested 1RMs, one rep max, in the abdominal torso rotation machine, which, Austin, have you ever uh, got one of those and spun around? Maybe like once in my life, I know what it is. Yeah. They also <laughs> yeah. tested the 1RM in a crunch. Machine and I assume somewhere. Uh, uh, what's that? What's the guy? The big three McGill somewhere is rolling over. He's like <laughs> they tested a one RM and previously sedentary individuals on the abdominal exercises. Uh, they also tested VO2 max to see if there were any differences in the different training protocols. So what were the different training protocols? So protocol number one. So the the people who got randomized to the abdominal endurance exercise group, basically four times a week, they ran on the treadmill for 27 minutes at 70 of their max heart rate. And then right afterwards, they did four sets of four-minute intervals doing abdominal crunches with 30 to 40% of their one-rep max on the abdominal crunch. They did a three-minute rest period, which was active rest, where they were doing continuous abdominal crunches at 20% of their one-rm. So effectively, they were doing – and then they were using a metronome where they would do 20 reps every minute. So they did 28 minutes of nonstop crunching at a rate of 20 crunches per minute. So they were doing like 480 crunches. (laughs) This sounds
1: legitimately reckless.
2: (laughs) So they were doing about 2,000 crunches per week. So a ton, if you were, you know, a ton of crunches every week. And they did the study for 10 weeks. Uh, Basically, once the group's, could or once the individuals could complete all the crunches that they were supposed to do they went up and weight. so that's how they progressively loaded it uh, austin how many crunches do you think you've done in your life <laughs>
1: <laughs> i definitely remember doing them as part of like what was it the presidential fitness test or something as a kid i don't remember if there's crunches in that did some when i was swimming haven't really done much of any since then i don't really do a ton of ab training once in a while i'll play with the ab wheel but that's kind of about it but Um, I definitely have seen people who ended up with like rhabdo, mainly coming from CrossFit land when they're unadapted to doing uh, like GHD sit ups, because those are effectively crunches with like an extra long range of motion and a significant eccentric component. So I've seen some pretty gnarly, even clinical rhabdo or just people who are like, they do those and they're wrecked for like two weeks (laughs) from, from soreness afterwards. Do you call that abdomyolysis or? Mm, I see what you did there. Yeah, Yeah. no doubt. Insert a little little Uh, sound sound gif of hitting the drums
2: there. (laughs) Optional humor. Um, Yeah, so the researchers also had a pretty ingenious approach. They tried to match total energy expenditure from both exercise groups. So effectively, they did a pilot study before this study where they had folks trial this sort of four – uh, intervals of four minutes on, three minutes off, crunching to see how much energy that they used during during that session. And effectively, it was found to be about 40% of the calories used for a 45-minute treadmill run at 70% of the max heart rate. So that's why they did crunches and they ran. They try to balance out how much energy was being um, expended for each uh, exercise session. So that's the abdominal endurance group. The control group ran on the treadmill four times a week for 45 minutes at 70% of their max heart rate, and then uh, they increased the incline to progressively load them once they were able to sort of complete the task without slowing down or whatever. They were like, oh, you can just go up on the incline. All right. So after 10 weeks, what were the results? Uh, For adherence, 91% of the abdominal endurance group um, did all of the sessions, and then 99% of the running group did all of the sessions. The trunk fat decreased by about 697 grams more, which is about a pound and a half more in the group doing crunches than the people just running on the treadmill, just a little over a, uh, one kilogram, uh, 2.2 pounds. The amount of fat loss in the lower extremities was the same. So they did re- regional DEXA scans to assess this, basically a DEXA scan between the lumbar vertebra L1 and L4 for the abdominal uh, uh, fat mass, and then they did it just over the legs Uh, for this regional sort of uh, fat mass loss the total fat mass loss was the same without differences between group groups the lean body mass loss was greater in the treadmill only group by about 1.6 kilograms so just over three and a half pounds whereas no loss was seen in the crunchers the crunchers didn't apparently lose any fat free mass the total weight loss was similar uh which about a kilogram no differences between groups the waist circumference decreased about five centimeters in both groups no differences between the groups the vo2 max improved about the same in groups with no difference um, and then as far as the one rm torso rotation that increased 27 percent in the crunchers it did not improve at all in the treadmill runners and then in the crunch strength one rm crunch uh, it increased 20% more in the crunchers versus, uh, the treadmill groups. It still improved, just not quite as much.
1: I w- was looking for like individual data. Like what were they crunching? Like 50 yeah, kilos, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, th- you said these were untrained people and they were doing a lot of training. And so uh, you said it was 10 weeks. Is that right? 10, ten weeks, 2000 so crunches approximately per week. Yeah. Long enough. I suppose that's pretty amazing that they didn't break these people. <laughs>
2: 20,000 crunches. Yeah. It was injury rates. Nope. Not reported, but at the same time, you would think if, like, you know, all of them dropped dead or got a significant injury, uh, yeah. that that would be reported. So, <laughs> or the all paper right. wouldn't have been published. Correct. <laughs> yes. All right. So, what's the interpretation of this study? So, the headline here to me is going to be that doing some sort of cardio and a ton of crunches reduces fat mass more than just cardio. Um, that's not particularly surprising. I mean, we know that exercise tends to preserve lean body mass when you're losing weight, it decreases the amount of metabolic rate reduction per unit of uh, weight loss it prevents weight regain it also improves function obviously via improvements in strength mobility etc compared to not doing any sort of uh, exercise the no difference in the waist circumference change is strange though it is possible the treadmill only group lost more non-fat mass than the group who did some lifting the crunchers so they could have lost uh, the treadmill group could have lost more glycogen more water etc and that could have like skewed the results the other issue here i have is with the technology used to assess fat mass loss itself which is dexa scan now in general we think dexa is like very very accurate and reliable and that is true uh, but when you start doing regional Sort of fat loss studies, things get a little bit different. So, when we think about abdominal fat, for example, the gold standard for assessing abdominal fat is not the DEXA scan, it's an abdominal CT. Uh, comput- computed uh, tomography tends to be more accurate, more specific, uh, more reliable than DEXA scan, although they do show good agreement. The biggest difference here is that DEXA tends to under report the amount of fat mass that people have in their abdomen by about 20% cts tends to be 20 percent higher so if anything a lower value obtained from dexa scanning may make a smaller change seem more significant just because the number is smaller itself um interestingly some of the studies used to validate regional dexa scan what they do is they have people sit in a dexa and they put bags of fat on top of their abdomen like bags of pig fat (laughs) and then they're like can you detect a change in the fat there wow and yeah (laughs) and apparently the DEXA scan can only account for about three quarters of the added fat. So again, there's some issues in the numbers here. Um, overall, the study was interesting, but I await reproducibility. My my biggest takeaway from this isn't that spot reduction outside of what we already know exercise itself to sort of cause is that the people doing the crunches did more of a like resistance training type component to their workout. Yes, it was supposed to be an aerobic sort of interval, but Damn, that's a lot of crunches. So that's some sort of resistance training component. I think it's more likely due, you know, the differences seen here are more likely due to a combination of maybe DEXA changes itself not necessarily being uh, granular enough to pick up changes in the treadmill only group, and then also, yeah, the crunchers did a little bit of lifting. Uh, Austin, what do you what do you think?
1: Yeah, I also think it's interesting. I'm not um, I'm not going to like close the book entirely on the concept of you know spot reduction being being possible. I also think about the generalizability of this in terms of you know these are these were untrained people who got thrown you know into the deep end of this of this training program to to see what happened 2000 crunches a week dude right. <laughs> and that doesn't really apply to effectively anybody who's uh, either not training and getting into exercise for the first time or people who habitually train don't do it in this way and so the idea that i can apply these results to like you know whether you know clients that that we coach people that we you know are guiding into exercise for the first time or definitely not to any of the people that we already train long term so the applicability of this is uh, questionable um i think you know most People would be interested in spot hypertrophy of their (laughs) musculature in particular areas, as well as generalized fat mass decrease would be desirable for them too. And I think that we have some pretty good strategies to go about that in general, both through training and uh, as we've talked about before, medical interventions and things like that, if necessary. So
2: Yeah. I think it would have been more interesting if they would have assessed like spot reduction and uh, like the appendages what, like the arms, for example, with like a triceps extension or biceps curl or something like that um, one because you're not the results are not clouded as much by this visceral adipose tissue change that we know to be to occur more preferentially through exercise so you kind of eliminate all of that and rather just focus on look you work the arms more did the arms lose more fat there? And then further, things like ultrasound at the level of the muscle, MRI at the level of the muscle are also really good at detecting changes in fat mass, muscle cross-sectional area, things like that. So I think they would have gotten more papers to publish out of just that one study. And then also it would have cleared this up a little bit better. You could have done 30 to 40% for forty for four minutes in a row of triceps extensions, for example. I I guess I'm just trying to think about. That's a long time, man. That's a long time to be doing any minutes of of any, yeah, like lifting-esque movement. Yeah, Crossfitters in the crowd are like, "No, I do four minutes of squats all the time." I'm like, "All right, well, yeah, you can you can follow up with this research group out of Norway and and give them tell them your results." This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to GeneralLeatherCraft.com and tell the Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature. Maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time,
2: and if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single
0: item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. All
2: right, let's move on to the second study. This is titled "Non Nutritive Sweetened Beverages Versus Water After a 52 Week Weight Management Program." This is a randomized controlled trial by Harold et al., published October 2023 in the International Journal of Obesity. All right, so some background here: non-nutritive sweeteners—that's what we're talking about here—are all are all of the synthetic and naturally occurring or modified sweeteners that are calorie-free and not sugar. That's the definition. Uh, Austin, you already asked me what my non-nutritive sweetener of choice was. It's clearly diet root beer. Is yours the same?
1: I think I've—you know—you've influenced me on that over the years. Diet root beer is definitely up there, especially when we do our seminar weekends. Other ones that are good, Fresca is uh, is pretty Ooh. tasty.
2: Okay. Wait. Is there a yeah. diet Fresca, or is Fresca always calorie? Ca- yeah, zero calorie. Yeah, mm-hmm. it already is. Dang, that <laughs> does sound pretty good. Yeah, I'm getting thirsty. I'm getting thirsty. <laughs> um, okay, so of the non nutritive sweeteners, there are eight non. Nutritive sweeteners currently approved for use uh, in food in the U.S. and Europe. Two are natural, that's stevia and monk fruit extract. Six are synthetic, so we're talking about uh, Ace-K, which is like Sweet one or Sunet. Aspartame, which is equal or NutraSweet. Neotame, Adventame, Saccharin, which is sweet and low. Sucralose, which is Splenda, um, and then some other derivatives. These aren't all the same. They all have unique chemical structures, varying different levels of sweetness compared to table sugar, and they're processed differently. They've been used for a long time. Aspartame, or equals, has been used since the 1960s, and saccharin, which is sweet and low, has been used since the late uh, 18, 1800s. Non-nutritive sweetener consumption is pretty common in the uh, diet in the U.S., It's been estimated to have increased by about 200% in children's and adolescents and 54% in adults between 1999 and 2000. So that was over 20 years ago. So I suspect it's actually even higher now. Um, Between 2009 and 2012, 25% of children and 41% of adults report consuming non-nutritive sweeteners at least once daily. And again, that's still over 10 years ago. I suspect that's even higher now. Uh, Austin, if you had to like grade your weekly intake or, or sort of quantify your weekly intake of non-nutritive sweeteners? What do you think you're at?
1: I probably have one of these types of beverages, I would say maybe like three like three to five times a week. I think I have one daily. I have a diet root beer almost
2: every day. Well, yeah, if I have it, I'm drinking it every yeah. day for sure until it's gone. And then there's usually like a day or two lag. But I, I add stevia to my oatmeal, which I have three times a day. So it's two packets per uh, time I have oatmeal. So I'm doing six packets a day of stevia plus, plus the diet root beer. i I would Fair say man. that my non-nutritive sweetener is pretty high. What's uh, what sort of cancers do you think that I'm, I'm growing? <laughs> <laughs> Not that we're joking about cancer. I'm just saying that's, a, yeah. that's something that's put out there. Like, Oh, don't you know that rats, for example, can develop all these types of tumors and, and cancers from, if you overfeed them with, with non-nutritive sweeteners, it's like, yeah, but a human can't really take in that much. That'd literally be like, 10 liters of diet soda. Anyway, another podcast. So in May of this year, the World Health Organization basically came out with this recommendation that said that non-sugar sweeteners Uh, shouldn't be used for body weight control or to reduce the risk of non-communicable diseases. This is based on a more uh, recent meta-analysis, again, May of 2023, that used 283 unique studies, including 50 randomized controlled trials, 97 prospective cohort studies, and 47 case control studies. So this all came out in May. We actually did a podcast on this. And so that was May. That's almost six months ago, Austin, over over six months ago. How did this change your practice with patients, if
1: at all? (laughs) Yeah, it did not. I still take a routine dietary history and if i and every single patient that i take a dietary history on i'm asking about whether they consume any sugar sweetened beverages and if they do then that becomes immediately a high priority target for substitution and then we just discuss as part of the behavior change process what they know about this um you know what their what their motivations are for doing that what they might be willing to whether they'd be willing to substitute it with something else and what that might be and if that ends up being something that is uh, that includes a non nutritive sweetener then i am good with that
2: Yeah. Yeah. The data was pretty clear that replacing foods with added sugars with foods sweetened with non-nutritive sweeteners, that was generally beneficial. So that meta-analysis that the World Health Organization used, that effectively eliminated any type of replacement of added sugars. They just looked at all the other data. And basically what they came up with at the end is they were like, well, the data is just not strong enough for long-term outcomes with respect to weight loss, non-communicable diseases. And so their recommendation was –
1: yeah we probably shouldn't recommend the use of artificial sweeteners non-nutritive yeah. sweeteners for people who don't consume sugar sweetened beverages and who also don't um already consume you know these kind of things with uh, artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners i don't go out of my way telling people that you should start consuming these things cuz i'm not convinced that there's a benefit to consuming them although this challenge this study uh, that we're about to talk about may challenge that um but that's been that's been my typical practice pattern here
2: yeah. Yeah. The uh, short-term data is actually pretty promising on non-nutritive sweeteners. Basically, those who replaced foods with added sugars in their diet with non-sugar sweeteners, they tend to reduce energy intake by about 136 calories and sugar intake by almost 40 grams per day. So like in the short-term, when things are controlled and people are actually doing the thing, replacing foods with added sugar with non-nutritive sweeteners, that the uh, results are pretty favorable with respect to weight loss, BMI change, markers of insulin sensitivity, things like that. Just the long-term changes are less clear and the problem is that most long-term data does not actually measure replacement of foods with added sugars or drinks with added sugars with foods or drinks that have non-nutritive sweeteners they basically just track the non-nutritive sweetener intake itself and unfortunately non-nutritive sweeteners are also found in lots of ultra processed foods that are high in calories high in added sugars high in added sodium and added fats and so it's kind of thought that the amount of non-nutritive sweeteners that most people take in correlates. Pretty strongly with their amount of ultra processed food intake, and so if you were trying to make a case for like reducing non nutritive sweetener intake, you could make it from the other side say, eh, probably should eat less ultra processed foods or less foods with added sugars, and then most most people's non nutritive sweetener intake would go down. The question though is like, well, what about just adding non nutritive sweeteners to oatmeal, for example, how like how I do, or drinking a, a, a non nutritive sweetened beverage like it compared to water. So that's what this study basically set out to do the study is known as the switch trial if you look at how they came up with that acronym you're going to be very very disappointed they basically <laughs> just picked letters from each word like not the first not the last, just random letters and they were like switch totally and i feel like they could have done a better job but they called this the switch trial and this investigated the effect of water and non-nutritive sweetened beverages on body weight at we at uh, one, the one year mark uh and this study was split into three different phases The first phase was a 12-week active weight loss phase the second phase was a 40-week assisted maintenance phase for those who lost weight and then there was a following uh, another year follow-up in a non-assisted maintenance extension phase so really the whole study lasted for two years but the data we're talking about today is just at the one year mark they recruited just under 500 subjects uh, that was whittled down to about half 262 subjects by the end of the year there was 137 people in the water group and 125 people in the non-nutritive sweetener group. They were paid about 300 pounds to participate. This was in England. 70% of the uh, subjects were female. The average age was 45. Average BMI was 31, so these were individuals who on average were with obesity and most had drank non-nutritive sweetened beverages before, something like 80% of the sample size. So very few were like non-nutritive sweetener naive. If you were in the water group, you were asked to abstain from all non- nutritive sweetened beverages so effectively you were drinking water only although they said you could still drink sugar sweetened beverages i think particularly in england if you're doing like tea or coffee you just Mm -hmm. add some sugar yeah and then in the non-nutritive sweetener group you were asked to consume at least two non-nutritive sweetened beverages per day but you could also again still drink sugar sweetened beverages i guess that's got to be some sort of like cultural thing where it's like, yeah. no, not, I can't do an English accent. I just, I thought about it. I just I <laughs> you're thought you're gonna offend it. somebody. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's offensively bad or a whole continent. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, the primary endpoint was weight loss at the end of the assisted maintenance phase, which again was at one year. They also did a DEXA scan to assess body fat changes. They monitored physical activity with the, an accelerometer that people had to wear. They assessed hunger and a few other things that we'll talk about. So what were the results? First off the sweetener consumption in the group who was assigned to the non-nutritive sweetened beverages they consumed way more artificial sweeteners than usual uh, a lot more uh, for some folks whereas the water group reduced intake from baseline to effectively zero so they just weren't having it so this is actually a pretty good study as far as the data that came out of this the weight loss was seven and a half kilos uh, that was lost in the non-nutritive sweetener sweetened beverage group whereas it was 6.1 kilos with the water only group this was statistically significant, the difference was, but barely. And once they tortured the data enough, they were like, "Yeah, we can't be certain that this difference is actually real. Effectively, what they thought, the researchers thought, would be a sort of uh, minimal, minimally clinically important difference was going to be 1.5 kilos. And so they didn't quite achieve that. Just shy of that. By Just 0. shy of that, yeah. Yeah. But it also didn't matter whether or not the people were regular consumers of non-nutritive sweeteners or if they were naive to them. Effectively, the results kind of persisted despite that. So I don't know that the weight loss difference is real, but it certainly doesn't seem like those who consume non-nutritive sweetened beverages like gained weight, for example, or did any worse. So if anything, some sort of positive signal here the non-nutritive sweetened beverage group they reduced their hip circumference more than the water only group which was statistically significant even after they adjusted for a bunch of potential confounders the dexa scan to assess body fat there were no differences between groups the high density lipoprotein uh, hdl there was actually a modest increase in the non-nutritive sweetened group beverage non-nutritive sweetened beverage group there was no increase in the water group and there were no changes in hunger ratings or physical activity uh, participation between groups so how do i interpret this well they didn't replace sugar sweetened beverages so perhaps this data is actually more indicative of whether or not water only is superior to drinking non-nutritive sweetened beverages the effects on weight loss were interesting i think this is most likely due to individual differences in response to the calorie restriction rather than a unique benefit of the non-nutritive sweetened beverages themselves but it certainly doesn't support the notion that those type of diet beverages are bad or cause weight gain in and of themselves I, you know, kind of what you alluded to earlier, it's not like you were going out recommending that people consume these types of beverages. Do you think it's analogous to the sort of alcohol intake, maybe reducing risk of like heart disease that we see as part of the French paradox, for example, they drink all this wine and, you know, some people claim they have a higher saturated fat intake, which is not really true. That's actually more, (laughs) there's, there's more to that story, but (laughs) you know, when people talk about the French paradox, they're like, oh, they drink so much wine. Should we just be recommending that people who don't currently drink, drink more wine? Is that, is it similar to
1: that? uh it's 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 similar to that in that I don't do either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, I think that I think that recommending people who don't already consume alcohol to start drinking it for those benefits is uh, a a poor idea in general and I definitely don't do it and the same thing would apply for um non-nutritive sweeteners unless there's some reason that the person wants to do them or if there's a healthful substitution to be had in their diet.
2: I feel more strongly though with this data coming out that there's likely no long-term sort of decrement to consuming non-nutritive sweetened beverages i I think what we previously had before was effectively pretty strong short-term data showing that those who are replacing sugar sweetened beverages with non-sugar sweeteners tend to have a benefit what we didn't know was that okay well how does this stack up against water long term because the thought would be that if you were previously consuming a lot of sugar sweetened beverages or foods with added sugar and you swapped all those to foods with non-nutritive sweeteners that maybe the dietary pattern you adopt and therefore sustain for a long period of time actually is not terribly health promoting long term we just didn't really know because of the data that 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 existed at the time so this data actually makes me feel a little bit more confident that non-nutritive sweetened beverage intake is pretty much
1: maybe beneficial if anything but certainly not harmful yeah i think one of the somewhat annoying aspects of the conversation around these uh these uh, food ingredients is Uh, as in many other areas, people really like to tell stories, (laughs) stories that that sound plausible, or that sound like they make sense. Everybody has heard, you know, uh, to whatever extent they've paid attention to conversation in this realm, somebody say something like, you know, you shouldn't consume these non nutritive sweeteners, because they they trick your brain, Uh, into thinking that you're consuming food, and then there's no calories. And so then you get extra hungry, and you make up for it, and then you gain a bunch of weight, or they trick your brain into secreting insulin, and then you become insulin resistant, which is not how insulin resistance works. But they say that anyway, and it sounds plausible to people who don't know things. And so they they kind of uh, take that as reality. Um, And so there are just a bunch of uh, overly simplistic, semi plausible sounding stories around these things. And the more data that accumulates on them that is incompatible with those stories, the more we can try to put those to bed, even though the types of people who perpetuate those arguments are not typically the types to be swayed by such evidence. So when we say that, hey, if these food sources were tricking your brain into making you hungry and consuming way more calories, this these data from the study are incompatible with that conclusion, right? And so that would weaken that sort of a claim. Um, Of course, you know, the idea that it definitively rules out any possibility, I wouldn't go that far because I'd be curious, for example, were there individual subjects in this study who did somehow gain a bunch of weight on the non-nutritive compared to, you know, individual subject level stuff always raises questions. But, you know, on the whole, um, the idea that these food sources reliably, you know, have those sorts of effects of increasing hunger or worsening metabolic health, quote unquote, whatever, however you're going to define that, et cetera, is not really compatible with the results that we've seen from this paper and many, many, many others
2: totally yeah i mean those biomarkers that we that are tracked in this like the hdl change for example while it was just a modest increase and you could chalk that up to like biological or analytical variation in the lab itself if insulin resistance did really get worse you would expect the hdl to go go the other way yes hip hip circumference reduction was greater in the non-nutritive sweetened beverage group and so again if insulin resistance was going up you'd expect hip circumference to go up same thing with dexa scan you would expect dexa to pick up some sort of untoward uh, sort of outcome based on that insulin resistance sort of mechanism, or and same thing with hunger. There were no differences in hunger changes in either group uh, or between groups. And so, again, if consuming all of these non-nutritive sweetened beverages actually did reliably increase hunger in a way that was generalizable to the to the population, you would expect to pick that up in a study of this size, but uh, there weren't. And because this was a study of non-nutritive sweetened beverages only, this to me tells a better story to your point than previous analyses on non-nutritive sweetened beverage intake uh which uh, are you know the total intake of non-nutritive sweetened sweeteners is less indicative of uh dietary behavior because it can include things like ultra processed foods it doesn't actually measure the replacement of foods with added sugars there's just a bunch of stuff that can confound the data so this to me tells a better story of like what about diet coke is diet coke uniquely harmful for example or you know artificially sweetened tea or putting stevia in your coffee or whatever this tells me this gives me more information there specifically speaking to that sort of question so in conclusion my take on this is that non-nutritive sweeteners aren't essential or uniquely health promoting but they don't appear to be uniquely harmful either the any risk that we could probably find in the data from non-nutritive sweetened sweetener intake is probably attributable to ultra-processed foods that also consume that also contain non-nutritive sweeteners um, adding non-nutritive sweeteners to a health promoting dietary pattern, like in the form of diet drinks or artificial sweetener to a minimally processed food, like oatmeal to me, that's probably fine. Which does confirm my biases. Sure. Uh, non-nutritive sweeteners are probably best used for replacing added sugars, particularly uh sugar sweetened beverages. If someone is drinking like regular Coke, for example, or regular root beer, and you replace that with a diet drink, I think that's a win all the way around where I'm less confident is that if you have a food that has added sugar. And then you replace it with one, with a non-nutritive sweetener, and that still has some added sugar to it. I don't know that there's actual an actual benefit there because I think that the dietary pattern hasn't changed enough. And so for that reason, I think that at the population level, diets probably shouldn't be that sweet because if the diet is sweet, it likely contains food and beverages with added sugars, uh, particularly ultra-processed foods, um, compared to foods that are minimally processed or unprocessed. They just tend to not be that sweet. And so avoiding foods with added sugars and ultra-processed foods or pretty much part of all health promoting dietary patterns and so i just don't think that the diet should be that sweet but if you want to have a diet coke doctor approved from me pretty much
0: (laughs) the other the
1: other the other source that i didn't mention earlier uh, that people probably who might be listening to this commonly consume is like a lot of whey protein supplements are sweetened in some form um and similarly we feel like that is fine
2: yeah yeah, I know. Nobody's no, – well, I, I guess like when we first released our whey protein, WRX, the very first iteration of it was sweetened with stevia, for example, and people loved that. They were like, it's sweetened with stevia instead of like ACE-K or you know, sucralose or whatever, and I'm like, w- why do you guys prefer that? I mean, it's not that it's healthier for you, for example. Some people claim they can like f- tell the difference or whatever, and I'm like, well, eh, I would have to see that in like a – a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But you know, people have different preferences and that's fine too. There are a lot of different places you can get your protein from ours currently don't use stevia anymore just because it was so uh, offensively expensive and uh, it didn't actually taste as good. And so I'm like, I would prefer something that tasted well, tasted, tasted good, mixed well, and that was affordable for folks. And so that's kind of how we ended at our, our current formula. But yeah, I just don't really have a problem with people consuming non-nutritive sweetened beverages of any type. I think when you start getting into foodstuffs, tabletop foodstuffs, that starts getting a little tricky because then I'm like, well, what is the level of processing in this thing and how what is the rest of the food that you consume? All right, well, that is a wrap on episode 258 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki. Special thanks to him for joining me on this podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.